Section 8 of Clever Hans, The Horse of Mr. Von Austen by Oscar Funkst, translated by Carl Leo Rahn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 5 Explanation of the Observations, Part 2. The case is different with the perception of the directive signs for tapping, for nodding, and shaking the head, etc., all of which require the perception of movements. This is not necessarily more difficult on account of the imperfect constitution of the tissues that serve for the refraction of light. Some authors even aver that this facilitates the perception of moving objects. This view was first advanced by the excellent ophthalmologist R. Berlin of Stuttgart. In arriving at this view, he was guided by the following considerations. The peculiar form of astigmatism of the lens of the horse's eye, which Berlin has described as Butzenscheibenförmig, footnotes, Butzenscheiben, are the small circular panes of green glass used in leaded windows in early days. They are high in the middle, hence the name Butzer, a protuberance, with a number of concentric circles around the central elevation. Translator. End of footnote. Because it appears in the form of a series of glossy concentric circles around the lens nucleus, has the property of enlarging the pathway, and with it the rapidity, of moving retinal images. If we take a speculum by means of which a view may be had of the interior of the eye, and fixate a definite point on the retina of the horse, and then make a slight movement of the head horizontally, we find that the point fixated moves, apparently at least, towards the border of the pupil. In a normally constructed eye, this seeming movement will be in a straight line, while in the eye of the horse, according to Berlin, its path is curved, and therefore longer. Berlin believes that the same thing which here occurs in the case of this merely apparent movement must also happen when an external moving object is imaged on the horse's retina. Its pathway, too, will be curved, and therefore longer, so that if the head of Mr. Von Austen moves past the animal's eye, then the image on the horse's retina will take a longer, more circuitous route than it would if the eye were not astigmatic. We cannot, however, immediately conclude from the fact that an objective movement is imaged as being greater in extent on the retina, that it will therefore be more readily perceived by much less than it will appear greater to, the horse, than would be the case if the lens were normally constructed. The visual percept is not immediately dependent upon the retinal processes, for between the two are interpolated complex, inaccessible nervous processes. Still, Berlin believes that he is justified in drawing this conclusion from a number of relevant considerations. Accepting it, he believes that it would be possible for the horse to perceive movements that for the human eye, which is not subject to this form of astigmatism, would lie below the thresholds. This theory, the simplicity of which certainly must make a strong appeal, has been adopted by a number of well-known investigators, Schleich, Koenigshofer. If we also could accept it, then Hans's phenomenal power of perceiving the movements of objects would be explained, but doubts arise which restrain us. Even if we were to accept Berlin's view in general, we should still come upon the following difficulties. In the first place, it is questionable whether the peculiar form of astigmatism mentioned is indeed as common as he supposes. Footnote. 
Since no opportunity was given us to examine Hans's eyes, we do not know what their condition is in this respect. Though it would have been interesting to know, it would hardly make any difference in the views presented. If Hans should prove to be either far or nearsighted, then, if we are to make any supposition at all, it would be that the defect could not be very great, since nearsightedness exceeding two or three diopters and farsightedness exceeding one diopter is seldom found in the case of the horse. According to Mr. Von Austen, Hans at one time manifested a tendency to shy easily. Be this as it may, for little could be concluded from it, since in many extremely shy horses no kind of visual imperfection can be discovered. End of footnotes. The references in the literature are exceedingly meagre on this point. In order to make a few tests at least, I undertook to examine nine horses with the aid of Dr. R. Simon, oculist, to whom I am greatly beholden for the assistance given in these and other tests to be mentioned presently. In not one of the nine cases did we discover anything like the curved deflection which is supposed to be the sign of the form of astigmatism in question. But in order to test objectively whether Boleyn's assumption were justified, we examined in the laboratory fresh specimens taken from two horses. The eyes were fastened in a frame in what corresponded to their normal position. Their posterior spherical wall, i.e. their respective retinal surface, was replaced by a piece of ground glass. On a spherical surface, linear movements of a point of light are always imaged as curves, no matter what the shape of the lens forming the image may be. From more detailed statements, see page 170 at close of notes. Since, however, our investigation had to do only with those curves which were due to the qualities peculiar to the lens, we had to replace the spherical by a plane projection surface. In front of the eye thus modified, a strong light was placed at such a distance that the image of it, produced on the improvised back of the eye by the cornea and the lens, was a sharply defined point of light. Now, when the source of light was moved, the point of light would also move on the glass plate. Sitting at some distance behind the eye, we observed the movements of this point through a telescope. Thus we became witnesses of what happens upon the horse's retina when a moving object passes in front of his eye. Although we saw the point of light move through relatively long distances both horizontally and vertically, no sort of deflection in its pathway could be noted. Berlin's exposition does not hold true for the eyes of the horses, either living or dead, which were examined by us. But in the case of some of the horses in whom Berlin had seen the phenomenon for which we sought in vain, he himself tells us the deflection was very slight. In that case, it would appear, no great advantage would be gained along the lines indicated. But even assuming the degree of deflection to be very great, his theory goes to pieces on the very point it was supposed to explain. A concrete example will make this clear. If Mr. Von Austen, standing two feet away from the horse, raised his head one-fifth of a millimetre, which figure by no means represents the extreme values that were obtained, then in the horse's retinal image, every point of the man's head would move through a distance of 0.0025 millimetre, assuming the horse's eye to be free from astigmatism and assuming its focal depth to be 25.5 millimetres. 
If, however, other conditions remaining the same, we presuppose an extreme form of astigmatism, one in which the path of the retinal image is not a straight line, but is deflected into a semicircle, then each point would pass through a distance of nearly 0.004 millimeter. If the sensitive retinal elements have a diameter of 0.002 millimetre, as Berlin somewhat inexactly states, then from two to four elements would be stimulated in case there were no astigmatic deflection. But in case the deflection did take place, it would not necessarily involve more elements, as can be seen by making a simple graph. Indeed, we can imagine cases in which the circuitous path would involve even fewer elements than the straight one. And finally, when the movement which the horse is to perceive does not occur in a straight line, but in the form of a curve, which will generally be the rule, then the astigmatism will tend in many cases to decrease the curvature of the image's path on the retina, and sometimes even obviate it entirely. In all these cases, on Berlin's own theory, the perception of the movements would be hindered rather than aided. Footnote. For the benefit of specialists, I would say the following in addition to the more general remarks just made. For the most part, the determinations of refraction made on the eye of the horse are still rather unreliable. In skyoscopy, there is a dispute among investigators concerning ambiguous shadows and in the use of the refraction ophthalmoscope no definitive region of the eye's background has been adhered to by the various investigators. It appears that Rigel, whose diligent researches mentioned on page 164 were published in 1904, knew nothing concerning the round area in the horse's eye, discovered by Eisern in 1902. Also, if so great a degree of astigmatism is really the rule as is emphasised especially by Hirschberg and Berlin, then the simple refractive index usually given, sometimes within a half diopter, would be meaningless. Berlin and Bayer believe the vagueness of the retinal image resulting from the astigmatism is offset by this, that the oval pupil functions as a stenopeic slit. In view of the width of the horse's pupil, this appears to me to be rather hypothetical. Concerning Berlin's theory of deflecting astigmatism, I would say the following. Of the two ophthalmoscopic signs mentioned as being characteristic of this form of astigmatism, the concentric circles and the arcuate deflection of the pathway of the fixated points, when there is a movement of the eye of the observer, or of the eye observed, according to Berlin, the former is not so constant as the latter. So far as I know, the concentric ring formation is mentioned only by Bayer and Rigel, and is said to occur principally in horses with myopic vision, and hence, relatively, in a minority of cases. Judging from the particulars, we are inclined to believe that a case of Butzenscheiben lens reported by Schwendemann is in reality a case of senile sclerosis. Berlin repeatedly warns us against mistaking the one for the other. The arcuate deflection, on the other hand, has not been mentioned elsewhere as a personal observation. In Berlin's calculation of the increase in the extent of the retinal pathway, an ambiguity has crept in. He says that, in the astigmatic eye, there are stimulated 207 times as many nervous elements as would be stimulated in the ideally normal eye. It ought to read 207 more instead of 207 times as many. And this number holds only for the one case computed by Berlin, and under the specific assumption that exactly pi over 2 times the normal number of elements were stimulated. 571 instead of 364. 
Therefore, the general statement which Bayer makes in his textbook, that according to Berlin's evaluation, 207 times more nervous elements are stimulated in the astigmatic eye than in the non-astigmatic one, does not hold true. Closing this note, a few remarks concerning the experiments made by Dr. Simon and myself. All of the nine horses were tested for the vertical image by means of the ophthalmoscope. In most cases, Wolf's electric speculum was used. Atropine was not employed. For the laboratory tests, the adipose and the muscular tissues were removed from the eyeball and the rear part of the bulb cut away. The front part, containing the cornea and the lens, was fastened over one opening of a metal cylinder which was closed at the other end by means of a disc of ground glass. The hole, approximately as long as a horse's eye, was filled with a normal salt solution whose refractive index, 1.336, corresponds quite closely with that of the vitreous humour of the horse's eye. The pressure from within was regulated so that on the one hand it was not dimmed, and yet on the other there were no wrinkles in the cornea. The source of light, the filament of a Nernst lamp, was moved about in a plane 120 centimetres distant from the eye, and perpendicular to the optic axis. It was moved through the point of intersection as well as at various distances from it. Movement in horizontal and vertical directions was in each case along lines 150 centimetres in length, which would correspond to an angle of vision of not less than 64 degrees. The pathway of the imaged point was controlled by means of the crosshair of the telescope. If in the same way we observe through the sclerotic of an intact eye bulb, the point of light falling upon the retina and shining through the sclerotic and choroid, which is not difficult when we use an intense light, then to the observer its pathway will, of course, appear to be deflected convexly towards the periphery, and the deflection will appear the greater the farther the point of light is removed from the optic axis. End of footnotes. But to come now to the most pertinent objection, we saw that Berlin's whole train of thought rested upon the assertion that it made no difference whether we regarded by means of the speculum the seeming movement of a fixed retinal point, or whether the image of an external moving object is passing over the horse's retina. As a matter of fact, however, these two processes are very different from one another. In moving the mirror with its small opening, we are looking through ever-changing portions of the horse's lens, testing it out, as it were. The horse, on the other hand, sees with all parts of the lens simultaneously, insofar as the lens is not covered by the iris. The arcuate deflection, which is nothing but a registration of the difference in the indices of refraction of the different parts of the lens used consecutively, might thus be formed for the observer using the mirror, but never for the horse. For these reasons, we cannot conclude that the kind of astigmatism described can really increase the horse's acuity in the perception of movements. Since the light refracting apparatus of the horse's eye does not offer a satisfactory explanation for the extraordinary keenness of visual perception possessed by the Austin horse, we must go a step further and ask whether it may not perhaps be found in the part immediately sensitive to light, the retina. That portion really would seem to be adapted to the perception of movements of minimal extent, and for this reason it is more than three times as great in extent as the human retina, and the horse's retinal images are likewise larger owing to the position of the nodal point. 
the cells of the retina that are sensitive to light, the rods and cones, might therefore be correspondingly larger than those of the human eye, without thereby making the whole organ less efficient than the human eye. But the most recent measurements have shown that the rods and cones of the horse's eye are more minute than ours, assuming that, in the case of the horse, as is presumably the case in human vision, the transition of a stimulus from one retinal cell to the next already in itself induces a sensation of movement, then the horse ought to be extraordinarily keen in the perception of moving objects, provided that the horse's more minute cells are packed just as closely as in the human retina. And besides, there are two specially adapted areas within the retina of the horse. The band, streifenförmige area, which was discovered 15 years ago by Chaivitz, is a strip of 1 to 1.5 millimetres in width, transversing the entire retina horizontally, and is noteworthy on account of its structure, and probably too on account of its greater efficiency. It may have something to do with the accomplishments of the Austin horse, but in how far it would be hard to say. The other noteworthy position of the horse's retina is the round area, discovered some four years ago, located at the rear outer end of the band, and it is the best equipped part of the horse's retina and corresponds to the area of clearest vision, the yellow spot, in the human eye. But this round area need not come in for consideration by us, for its location would indicate that it is used in binocular vision, that is, seeing with both eyes. But in all our experiments, the Austin horse observed with only one eye. That does not mean, however, that under other circumstances the round area may not be of very great importance. In the present state of our knowledge, all attempts at explanation are, of course, of the nature of hypotheses. If further investigations should disclose this explanation to be untenable, then we would either have to suppose some unknown power in the eye of the horse, footnote, Königshofer, who, as we have already said, seconds the explanation given by the ophthalmologist Berlin, and who confounds Butzenscheiben astigmatism with the common so-called regular form, believes that not only astigmatism, but also the shape of the blind spot of the eye must be taken into consideration. This portion of the retina, where the fibres of the optic nerve enter the eye, and called blind spot because there are no cells there that are sensitive to light, is very nearly circular in man, but differs in shape in the different species of animal. Koenigshofer thought he had discovered that a relatively elongated blind spot was favourable to keenness of vision. If we place the mammalia in series on the basis of their relative keenness of vision, he says, we would find that this series is identical with the one in which they are grouped with reference to the form of the blind spot from the circular up to the most elongated. In such a series, the marmot takes the place of honour. This exposition is not very satisfactory, however. We cannot be sure what he means by keenness of vision, scharfäugigkeit. Is it visual acuity in the usual sense of the term, as is said in one of his passages, or keenness in the perception of the movement of objects, this would appear to be his real meaning, or both at the same time? But whatever the significance he may put into the term, any such attempts at grouping the lower forms must prove unsatisfactory from the very start on account of the scant data which we possess on visual perception in animals. The experiences of the hunt upon which Koenigschürfer partly bases his views are entirely inadequate for such a purpose. This much is certain, that the Austin horse, in spite of a blind spot which, 
though somewhat oval, is by no means very elongated, possesses an extraordinary acuity in the perception of movements. Even if the parallelism mentioned by Koenigsurfer were really shown to exist, it would not explain the matter until it were also shown in what way keenness of vision is dependent upon the shape of the blind spot, a portion of the eye which is not immediately operative in the visual sensation at all. End of footnotes. Or else seek a cause in the animal's brain. Further experiments on other horses would be necessary in order to discover whether the species as a whole possesses this ability or whether only certain ones are thus endowed. The former is, of course, more probable. In this particular case, conditions were unusually favourable for the development of this ability. We must bear in mind that in all probability Mr. von Osten's movements very gradually became as minute as they are now, and that therefore Hans at first learned to react to such as were relatively coarse. Furthermore, his practice extended throughout four years, and during this time it was his sole occupation. Without specific predisposition, however, all this practice would have been utterly futile. We can also readily appreciate how indispensable in the struggle for existence a well-developed power of perceiving moving objects must be to horses, and most other animals, living in their natural condition and habitat in order to be aware of the approach of enemies, or in the case of carnivora, the presence of prey. In view of all these considerations, we can readily see how it was possible that the horse, perhaps in spite of rather defective vision, could react with precision to movement stimuli which escaped observation by human eyes. We can understand also the horse's never-flagging attentiveness when we recall that self-preservation prompts eternal vigilance over against all that is going on in the animal's environment. In the case of Hans, hunger was at first the motive, later habit did the work. Furthermore, the lower form is not hindered in giving itself over to its sense impressions by the play of abstract thought which tends so strongly to direct inward our psychic energy, at least in the case of the cultured. Nevertheless, Hans still remains a phenomenon, not only in excelling all his critics in the power of observation, but also in that he is the first of his species, in fact the first animal, in which this extraordinary perceptual power has been proved experimentally to be present. It has long been known that horses could be trained to respond to cues in the form of slight movements, which remained unnoticed by the layman, and this fact has been made use of by circus trainers to its fullest extent. But such signs, I have discovered, are without exception of a far coarser sort than those which we have here described, and they can be instantly detected by the practised observer. Nor was it known to professional trainers that it was possible for the master to direct a horse to any point of the compass simply by means of the quiet posture of the body. For this reason it was believed that no signs could possibly be involved in the colour selecting tests. Compare Supplement 3, page 255. In this we have the support of some of our experts, as is witnessed by the following extract from a letter of His Excellency Count G. Lendorf, one of the best hippological authorities who at one time carefully examined the Austin horse. The letter was addressed to Mr. Shillings, and I have permission of both gentlemen to use it. In it he says, If the author's statements, in which you also have concurred, are correct, and if, as a matter of fact, the horse really does react to such minute movements as are absolutely imperceptible to the human observer, then we have indeed something quite new. For hitherto no one would have believed that horses can perceive movements which man cannot. 
but I am even more surprised by the explanation of the colour selecting feats. This too is something absolutely new. One would not have deemed it possible that a horse could do anything of the kind simply by using the posture of a man's body as a cue to which it could react with such precision. And yet, even though both facts were new concerning the horse, and had not hitherto been proven experimentally regarding any other species, nevertheless something of this sort has been known concerning the dog for some time. His ability to single out an object upon which his master had intently fixed his gaze was made the basis of a special form of training called eye training nearly 100 years ago. The dog was taught to focus constantly upon his master's eyes and then upon command to select the object which he, the master, had been fixating. Such a dog has been described by the naturalists A and K. Muller. But the master of the dog, unlike Mr. von Osten, would not permit anyone else to work with the animal, and the two brothers, recognising the trick, were justified in adding that the whole affair aimed at deceiving the public, and the horse's reputation was but a means of making money. The success of such exhibitions appeared furthermore to depend upon the close proximity of the trainer and the dog, whereas the direction of the head, and even of the body, could very probably be perceived at greater distances also. At least we learn from a reputable source that in the hunt, dogs can perceive from the mere posture of their master what direction he intends to take. But a still more curious fact is this, that dogs too learn, evidently spontaneously, to react to the minimal involuntary expressive movements of their master. The first example mentioned in the literature on the subject is that of an English bulldog called Kepler, belonging to the English astronomer Sir William Huggins. We are told that this dog seemingly could solve the most difficult problems, such as extracting square roots and the like. The numbers were indicated by barking. Thus, one bark was for one, two barks for two, etc. Every correct solution was rewarded with a piece of cake. Huggins states explicitly that he gave no signals voluntarily, but that he was convinced that the dog could see from the questioner's face when he must cease barking, for he would never for an instant divert his gaze during the process. Huggins was unable, however, to discover the nature of the effective signs. This satisfactory, though still unproven, explanation has been accepted by specialists, among them Sir John Lubbock. I, too, regard this dog as a predecessor of our Hans. A similar case is reported by Mr. Hugo Kretschmer, a writer of Breslau, in the Schlesische Zeitung of August 21st, 1904. To him I am beholden for a detailed written statement, which he has kindly permitted me to use in this connection. The gentleman named first trained his dog to ring the table bell, and this by pressing the dog's paw upon the bell button. When the dog had learned to do this independently, his master tried to teach him the rudiments of numbers, in such a way that the animal was to give one ring of the bell for the number one, two for two, etc. But these attempts failed utterly and had to be abandoned. But Mr. Kretschmer had noticed that he was able to get the dog to ring any number which he, Mr. Kretschmer, might decide upon. Success was always rewarded by a bit of bread and butter. At first, Mr. Kretschmer tried to imagine vividly only the final number, but failed thereby to elicit correct responses from the dog. But he did succeed when he tried making a series of separate volitions. Thus, for the number five, he would will each separate push of the button on the part of the dog. Even so, however, he never got beyond nine, for then the dog would become impatient and would ring the bell continuously. Anything that diverted the dog's attention, such as noises, etc., 
also entailed failure. In these tests, Master and Dog had faced each other, each gazing steadfastly at the other. Mr. Kretschmer was convinced, however, that the dog was not guided by any sort of sign, but rather by suggestion. He based his belief on the following two observations. After some practice, he says, the tests were also successful when he did not look at the dog, but stood back to back with it, or when he screened himself from the dog's view by stepping to one side behind a curtain. The tests were unsuccessful, on the other hand, whenever he was mentally fatigued or had taken some alcoholic drink. The arguments do not appear to me to be adequate. If he turned his back upon the dog and no other observer was present, he had no means of knowing whether the dog did not, after all, peer around to get a peep at him. If others who knew the desired number were present, the dog might have gotten his cues from them. And there may be some doubt whether the curtain adequately served the purpose for which it was intended. At any rate, it was added that all attempts to influence the dog from an adjoining room, which would thus exclude effectively all visual signs, were utter failures. I am also strengthened rather than weakened in my belief by the second argument which Mr. Kretschmer makes, namely that mental fatigue or the use of alcohol on the part of the questioner tends to make the result unsatisfactory. We noted a similar effect in the case of the horse, where a disturbance of the rapport between the questioner and the horse was invoked by some by way of explanation. The facts were explained by us much more simply. We attributed the results to the close correlation between the type of mental concentration and the nature of the expressive movements, a correlation which we have shown experimentally to exist. I cannot, therefore, subscribe to the view that this dog did not require either visual or other sensory signs. The tests which were made for the purpose of strengthening that view are on a par, I believe, with those mentioned on page 45. And since auditory, olfactory and other stimuli, though not impossible, still are improbable, I believe that our Hans Huggins's dog and the one belonging to Mr. Kretschmer differ from one another only in this, that the first taps, the second barks, and the third presses a bell button. And finally, I have access to a letter from the Rhine province, in which there is a brief account of a dog that would promptly obey any command that was given without a sound, and supposedly without the accompaniment of the slightest kind of gesture. It is specially mentioned that the animal steadily watched its master during these tests. The perception of the slightest involuntary expressive movements is in all probability the secret in this case also. Here, too, suggestion has been invoked by way of explanation, but there was not the slightest attempt made to find for it a more specific foundation. And we cannot suppress an objection based upon the matter of principle. It is incumbent upon anyone who uses a term so ambiguous to define what content he desires to have put into it. If he does not do this, he is giving us, instead of a concept, a bare word, instead of bread, a stone. While we must reject the explanation based on suggestion, footnote. I can find examples of supposed suggestion in the case of animals given only by Ruhet. He says that by means of suggestion he taught a half-year-old, half-blooded mare colt, which he had raised himself, to fetch and carry, and this in a very short time. In order to indicate to the colt what was wanted, Ruhet would concentrate with his whole mind upon the object intended, a watch, and at the same time he would bend forward slightly. In the third test, 
that is at the end of 15 minutes, he had accomplished his purpose, and in the 10th lesson, no more mistakes occurred. The cult would fail to respond, however, as soon as he refrained from making any gestures, or was in a laissez-faire frame of mind, or when he thought of other things. He therefore believes that there must have been some kind of immediate, though inexplicable, connection between the brain of the trainer and that of the horse. I think the explanation is evident. The connection was not, as he thought, an immediate one, but arising through the mediation of the man's attitude, attitude un peu baisse, and of his movements, geste, both resulting from his intense concentration, tension de la pensée. In general, we may say that, no matter what content we may wish to put into the term suggestion, not a single fact has come to light which would justify, and much less demand, the application of the term to lower forms, unless we would expand the definition of the term to the extent of comprising every kind of command, every arousal of ideas whatsoever. But it would then be nothing but a new name for old knowledge and would lose all explanatory power. Hypnotism, so-called, in the case of horses, I shall discuss elsewhere in another connection. End of footnotes. We believe, on the other hand, that we have here again evidence of the presence of visual signs given unwittingly and involuntarily, just as I am sure they were involved in the two preceding cases and similarly in the case of the Huggins dog. Since the effective signs were discoverable in none of these canine predecessors of Hans, an investigation would be desirable based upon the insight gained as a result of these experiments upon Mr. von Osten's horse. Unfortunately, this is impossible since the dogs in question are dead, but others like them undoubtedly exist in many places. We might mention that when Hans first came under the limelight of public attention, there was also frequent reference to the Huggins dog, but he soon dropped out of the discussion again. And this is for two reasons. The dog never took his gaze from his master and appeared to be entirely dependent upon him in his reactions. Hans, on the other hand, seemed to give evidence of a high degree of independence and never appeared to look at the questioner. But we know now that, though he was never dependent upon the will of his master, he, too, abjectly hung upon the man's involuntary movements and never for a moment lost him from view. But since the horse is able to observe with one eye alone, and needed to direct only it and not the entire head towards the questioner, in order to focus comfortably, one could not conclude as to his line of vision from the direction of the head. Since, furthermore, in the horse the pupil is hardly distinguished from the darkly pigmented iris, and since the white sclerotic is hidden by the eyelids, except when the eye is turned very much, it is difficult to determine what direction the eye is taking. I once purposely stepped backwards to the horse's flank, so that he had to turn his eye far back, and thus the outer border of the iris and the white sclerotic coat became visible, and all doubt concerning the line of vision was removed. This doubt could never arise in the case of the dog, the median plane of whose head is always directed towards the object fixated, and Zorbzil is justified in saying, as he does, in his discussion of training of the kind mentioned on page 177, but any careful observer can immediately guess the manner in which such a dog has been trained. 
If Hans had chanced to possess so-called glass eyes, in which the dark pigment is wholly or partly lacking, so that the black pupil is clearly defined against the lighter background, then no doubt could ever have arisen concerning the direction of the eye, and Hans never would have become regarded as the clever Hans. After the publication of the December report, Hans acquired a reputation for the excellence in thought reading, and thus the discussion of thought reading among animals in general became once more the order of the day. That is to say that many of our domestic animals are, like the human mind reader, a la Cumberland, supposed to have the ability to infer the thoughts of their masters from slight involuntary movements. They are thus aware when the feeding hour approaches, when they may go out in the open, etc. They also appear to be aware that their welfare lies in our hands, and therefore would seem to have a vital interest in divining our intentions and our wishes, not only our spoken words, but our numberless movements, usually without our knowing it, and often contrary to our desire, speak a clear language. As is well said by the American neuropathologist Beard, who first explained the phenomenon of thought reading, on the basis of the perception of very minute muscular jerks, and therefore called it muscle reading or body reading, every horse that is good for anything is a muscle reader. He reads the mind of his driver through the pressure on the bit, though not a word of command is uttered. We know that in the case of perfectly trained horses, the rider's mere thought of the movement which he expects the horse to make is seemingly sufficient to cause the animal to execute it. Footnote. An illustration is given by Babinet concerning the horse of an English lord. Mr. Burkhart Footit, also that excellent trainer, who has been master of more than 40 of the most highly trained horses, tells us that while sitting on a well-managed horse, it sometimes happened that he had merely thought of making a certain turn, when the horse immediately executed, before he, the rider, had to his knowledge given any sign or aid. An observation belonging under this head is also made in Tolstoy's Anna Karenica, this perfect mine of acute psychological observation. In the famous description of the race we are told concerning Count Vronsky riding his frou-frou just behind Machetin mounted upon Gladiator, who was leading the race, at the very moment when Vronsky thought that it was time to overtake Machetin, frou-frou, divining her master's thought, increased her pace considerably, and this without any incitement on his part. She began to come nearer to Gladiator from the more favourable, the near side. But Machetin would not give it up. Vronsky was just considering that he might get past by making the larger circuit on the offside, when Frufu was already changing direction and began to pass Gladiator on that side. Similar experiences might be gathered elsewhere. Not infrequently, the reflection of the rider that his horse had not for a long time indulged in some trick peculiar to him will immediately call it forth, or doubts on the part of the rider concerning the possibility of crossing some barrier are often the cause of the horse's fall, or of his refusal to leap and of his running away. End of footnotes. Such cases are, of course, very much like that of our hands, excepting that instead of visual signs they involve aids of a mechanical nature, which, however, do not alter the general principle, since both of them are of the nature of sensory stimulation. But we must not overlook the essential difference between this so-called thought-reading on the part of animals and that which is done by man. The human thought-reader can interpret movements, for he is familiar with the ideas which are their source. 
Thus, when at the second tap, I noticed a very slight jerk on the subject's head and a stronger one at the fifth tap, I infer that he thought of the problem 2 plus 3 equals 5. While the experimenter thus cannot be said to read thoughts, he still infers them. The animal, on the other hand, we may be reasonably sure, draws no such inferences. In its conscious life, it remains ever on the sensory level. If we could ask Hans about it, he would probably answer, as soon as my master stoops forward, I begin to tap. As soon as he moves, I stop. The thing which induces me to act thus is the carrot which is given me. What it is that induces my master to make his movements, I do not know. It is therefore erroneous to believe that animals require the power of abstract thinking in order to utilise the signs which are consciously or unconsciously given to them, as is argued by Goldbeck when he says with reference to the training for visual signs, which we have mentioned before, there the dog has consciously interpreted the visual impression in terms of the conclusion that he is expected to bring forth the leaf indicated. Nor was there any justification for the critic who thought he could put the essence of the report of December, given in Supplement 4, in the following words. He, Hans, showed that he has the power of attention, can draw logical conclusions, and can communicate the result of his thinking, and all this independently. Yet none of this had been asserted. The whole thing may be explained satisfactorily by means of a process of simple association established between the signs observed in the master and certain reactions on the part of the horse. The fact that the movements made were so exquisitely minute does not change the matter in the least. Such signs call for a high degree of sensory keenness and great concentration of attention, but by no means an extremely high intelligence. Let us turn now from the consideration of visual perception to that of auditory perception in the horse. We saw that the fact that Hans was able to respond to commands which were only inwardly enunciated, that is, commands which were merely thought of but not spoken, was not proof of great acuity of hearing, but rather that hearing was not at all involved. If Hans had been deaf, he would, nonetheless, have promptly obeyed the commands. Blind and near-sighted horses try to overcome their deficiencies by means of the sense of hearing, and hence show a pronounced play of ears. In the case of the Austin horse, however, attention has been diverted from auditory stimuli in the process of habituation to visual signs, and as a result ear movements are almost completely wanting. One is not, of course, permitted to deny a priori that perhaps some associations might have been formed between objects and the vocal signs belonging to them, e.g. between the coloured cloths and the names of the cloths, if both had been presented together oftener than was the case. But there is a dearth of reliable observation as to how far auditory associations of this sort may be established in horses. Usually the following is cited. Horses learn to start off, to stop, and to turn about in response to calls. They are able to distinguish properly between the expressions right and left, or equivalent terms. Upon command, they will start to walk, to trot, or to run, and they also know the name by which they are usually called. All authors agree that cavalry horses understand the common military commands. One writer even avers that they excel the recruits in this respect. 
Some believe that in riding schools, the horses pay closer heed to the calls of the riding master than to the control of the unpracticed riders, even when the two are at variance with one another. My experience with the Austin horse and a number of other pertinent observations aroused in me the suspicion that much that is called or spoken in the process of managing a horse may possibly be just so much labour lost. In consequence, I made a series of relevant experiments. I have thus far tested 25 horses of different kinds, from the imported Arabian and English full blood down to the heavy draught horse. The experiments were made partly in the courtyard of military barracks, partly in the circus, and partly in a riding school or in private stalls. I am specially indebted for kind assistance to Messrs. von Lucanus, Bush, and to H. H. Burkhart Footit and E. Schumann, the two excellent trainers connected with the Bush Circus. During these tests, the horses were always amid circumstances familiar to them, whether free or bridled, under a rider or hitched to a wagon. All aids or signals, except the calls, were eliminated in so far as it was possible. The results of those tests were in substance as follows. Many horses react to a smack of the lips by a rather fast trot. Many stop on the cry, holler or brr. This last was nicely illustrated in the case of two carriage horses supplied with large blinders and held with a loose rein and hitched to a landau. One of them regularly stopped when the brr was given by the driver, whereas the other, which had not been habituated to this signal, kept serenely on the trot so that the vehicle regularly veered off the track, a sure sign that no unintentional aid was being given by means of the reins. Other horses, again, were accustomed to halt in response to the long-drawn-out holler, but it was the cadence of the melody rather than the word that was effective, since any other word, or even a series of inarticulate sounds, would produce the same result, provided they were given with the proper inflection. When this was changed, then the response would fail. The result was not so apparent when it came to controlling the kinds of gait. One riding school horse, when lunged and in a gallop, could be induced by a friendly call, the word again was a matter of inconsequence, to slacken his pace into a trot and from a trot into a walk. But this reaction was by no means very precise. Another, a full blood, contrary to the trainer's expectation and to his great astonishment, failed to respond to any kind of spoken command as soon as the one who carried the reins refrained from making any movements which might indicate what was wanted. To refrain from all expressive movements of this kind is by no means an easy matter. The slightest move, apart from any help by means of the rein or the whip handle, was sufficient to evoke a response. The results in the case of the military horses differed in many particulars. Thanks to the courtesy of Captain von Lucanus, I had the opportunity of testing three cavalry horses, two geldings and one mare, aged 9, 13 and 19 years respectively, and all of them in the regiment ever since their fourth year. They had been selected as the most intelligent of the squadron, and we were assured that they would obey punctiliously all the usual commands. They were ranged behind one another with the customary distance of two horses lengths between and were ridden each by his accustomed rider. Both starting and stopping upon command were tested. The horses were held by the reins but the riders were cautioned to refrain from giving any aid that might cause the horse to start when starting was to be tested or that might restrain him when stopping in response to the spoken command was to be tested. If a suspicion arose, a thing which happened only 
twice, however, that a rider had actively aided in his horse's reaction, then an officer would mount into the saddle. If it appeared that one of the horses was simply imitating the others, then the others were purposely restrained by their respective riders. The commands were given by the corporal who usually had charge of the horses. In a few cases, the sergeant of the squadron gave the commands, but this made no difference in the success of the experiments. Now as to the results. Whenever the horses were trotting or walking, all commands without exception were in vain. They affected neither an increase nor a decrease in the pace. A result was obtained only when the horses were standing when the test began, and this result was simple enough. Upon certain calls, the animals would respond by beginning to walk. This was the only reaction that was obtained. The most effective of the commands appeared to be squadron march, but the commands squadron or march alone were quite as effective, yet none of these commands were obeyed without exception. Reactions were occasionally obtained in response to trot, gallop, retreat. The usual introductory squadron was purposely omitted here because it alone sufficed to start the horses, but the reactions were always the same, namely to start on a walk. Another series of commands, such as those which were addressed to the rider alone, e.g. lances down, had no effect whatever. A certain amount of selection, therefore, did seem to take place. In all these tests, the order of the horses with reference to each other's position was repeatedly changed. One of the horses, the youngest and reputed to be the most intelligent, he was a matter of fact the most spirited, gave evidence of a gregarious instinct intensified by habit, which, if it had been overlooked, might have become a source of serious error. Not being accustomed to go at the head, when so placed it started promptly in only 18% of such cases. When, however, other conditions remaining the same, he was put in the second or third place, he started properly in 67% of the tests. And if we take into account only those cases in which the three most effective commands were used, squadron, march and squadron march, he reacted correctly in 91% of the cases. The numbers of tests were 17, 36 and 22 respectively for the three groups mentioned. The horse, therefore, almost always began to step properly when he stood behind one of his companions, but seldom when he stood at the head. And when he stood at the head and began to walk at the proper moment, it was plain that it was a case of imitation and not initiative, for the horse was still able to see the others, owing to the extent of his field of vision backwards, and he was always the last to move, whereas otherwise he was always the first to move and always difficult to restrain. So when the horses to the rear were restrained, or when the intervening distance of two horses' lengths was lessened, so that this gelding could not see the one in the rear, he failed completely to respond. Accordingly, these three horses did little to justify the faith which the squadron had placed in them. End of section 8. Recording by Jordan Watts, Oxfordshire.